Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, Mission. I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, and as Pastor Eric said, uh, we're going to finish up something we've been working on for quite a while today. Uh, we're going to finish up the Sermon on the Mount. I know you guys are thinking, what, so soon? It's only been eight months of one sermon. Um, and yet, we are going to finish today. So go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 29. I pray that everyone here has come expecting God to move in this place and to be in our midst. I have prayed all week for that. I have prayed all week for this message. Uh, and I, I'm pumped to preach this morning. It could be because I like to preach. It could be the energy drink I drank a little too recently. Or it may be that I'm just excited not to be preaching Matthew 7:21 again because that was scary last week. But Matthew chapter 7 verses 24 through 29. Now, Today we're going to do a little Tarantino action, so we're going to look at verses 28 and 29 first. Some of you are looking at me like, what does that mean? That guy directs movies, sometimes he shows the end first, and then I'm not even recommending you watch any of his movies, but that's what he does, so that's what we're going to do here today. We're going to look at the end of what chapter 7 says, and then how does that apply to what is said in the verses beforehand. Okay, so let's read the whole passage, and then we will focus our time accordingly. If you would, uh, please stand with me as we read God's Word, just out of reverence for His Holy Word this morning. So Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 29. It says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for another time to look into your word. Um, and not just look into your word, but look into Jesus' words. And how do those words apply to us today? Because they are timeless. Because they are infallible. Because those words are your words. And that for all time, they have context. For all time, they say something. And I pray that this morning that these words speak I pray you use me as a filter, but I pray that it is your word that is speaking to the hearts and minds of the people here today, that you would move me aside and get me out of your way. I pray for the hearers and the listeners this morning that we would hear what you have to say through your word. It would quicken our hearts, and it would spur us on to your mission outside of these walls. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> All right. So, again... Like I said, we're going to look at the end and then go back to the beginning. So verses 28 and 29, if you read them and you're just reading through your daily reading and you read Scripture and you read Matthew chapter 7, when you get to those verses, some of us may, and by some of us I mean I myself am guilty of this, you may just read through them and say, okay, these are just kind of throwaway transitional verses where you're going from Jesus' preaching and teaching and his warnings to now we have to start a different topic where he's not preaching anymore 
and he's going to start his healing ministry and, and start moving along. And these verses just serve as a transition. Now, confessionally, as, as a preacher, that is the hardest part of all sermons to me, is the transition statements. Usually the big ideas can become obvious as you study, but it's getting from big idea to big idea without seeming clunky or weird that is a struggle for me. And that is why I have constantly mentioned through this series how easily Jesus does it and how seamlessly he goes from one point to the very next logical point. It's like he knows what people are thinking. <laughs> surprise, surprise. But he knows what people are going to be questioning him on, so he moves to the next topic and the next. And it's hard for, for me a lot of times, but I want, I want us to understand that these verses are not that. If not properly addressed, they can seem like that because Jesus has been preaching instruction and then he goes to warnings of not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, make sure you're on the narrow, narrow path and enter the narrow gate. He gives these warnings of false prophets and then we're going to move into his healing ministry and hey, we just inserted these verses. But again, that is not why they are there. They hold much meaning for really... And they color the entire Sermon on the Mount if we look at them appropriately. So let's look what it says. First line says that they were, when he was done speaking, they were not only awake, which is not something I can say for everyone in here when I preach, but what, they were awake and they were astonished. Okay, so they were astonished at his teaching. Now first of all, this in and of itself speaks volumes about Jesus' teaching. There were itinerant preachers going around everywhere during this time. Now, some of them were preaching different messages, but their, their point was the same. They wanted to gather a following and be famous and get notoriety. That Jesus was not the only guy going around. I mean, John the Baptist was even around at this time preaching. He was preaching the same message, but there were messengers speaking things all over the place. So Jesus was not the first they would come along, try to garner a huge following, kind of like social media today or YouTube today. They would just try to get a lot of people to listen to what they had to say. Whether it was useful or not was beside the point if you could just get enough people to come with you. We see this mentioned later in Scripture in Acts chapter 5. I'm just going to read it for you real quick. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged. So this is the scribes and the Pharisees. And wanted to kill them, the followers of Jesus. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So we see in Scripture, these guys were going around everywhere. They were trying to capture the fame and notoriety of a following, of being famous. So Jesus was not alone, and yet they were astonished at his teaching. But why? Now, was it because he perfectly blended ideas together like I just mentioned? Was it because he perfectly maneuvered between being passionate about something and getting loud and then being subdued and quiet and saying those things the right way and the intonation of his voice was perfect even though there were no microphones then? He was able to reach everyone. Or was it because he had the perfect hand motions which no one in this church has mastered because I look like a moron up here and Eric does spirit fingers and I don't know why we do the things we do but was Jesus just really good at that I, I don't know okay was he just more polished 
Was he saying things that were just so different from everyone? Was it because they were flying in the face of the scribes and the Pharisees? Or was it because they were so radical? And all of these things may be true, but Scripture specifically tells us here why they were astonished. And it doesn't say because he had hand motions or because he spoke with the proper tone in his voice or any of those things. It says that he spoke with authority. They were astonished because he was speaking with authority. And it goes even a step further and contrasts that with the scribes. He's, they say the scribes did not teach this way. Say so It says he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes do. But here's the thing that, that makes that statement a little odd is scribes did have authority back then. They spoke and people listened. Their job was to speak and have people listen. Their job was to speak well. Their job was to preach and teach things. They did have authority. They spoke with authority and that was what they were supposed to do. But here's the other thing. These scribes weren't saying anything new at the time. They weren't coming up with new doctrines. They were not teaching their way is, is better than your way. They were teaching something that had already been written. They were not drastically, or they were not supposed to be drastically changing the way of life or the normalcy. They were supposed to tell them, what does this book say and how does that apply to your life? Now, it may have changed context to context as the time went on, but they were still simply parsing out what Scripture said, what the Old Testament said, what the Torah said. They were pointing to someone or something else. This is true of preachers now. This is true of me right now, specifically. This is true of all good preachers that should be pointing at someone else. This is why many people will say, well, my preacher says this when they get into debates. Well, my preacher said that this was true of the Bible, or this was true, or this was true. That is why a lot of people, it's getting less and less nowadays, but are more prone to believe something if the name pastor, preacher, minister, bishop, whatever you want to call it, is ahead of their name. People tend to or want to believe what they say more because they do have some form of authority. And the thing is, is that's not a bad thing. I, it, it's actually a good thing for preachers to speak with authority. I hope and pray that I speak with authority here today. I hope and pray that what I say, is, that I'm passionate about it, that I truly believe it, that I speak with authority. Authority when I preach. We'll come back to that idea in just a second. Back in the uh, mid-1700s, uh, there was a preacher going around, and Benjamin Franklin, not the preacher, Benjamin Franklin was, became very enamored with this guy. His name was George Whitfield. Now, Whitfield at the time was very popular. Some of that was good. Some of that was bad. He received many death threats. I don't know how they got to him. I guess the... the Carrier pigeons, I, I don't know. It's easy to get death threats now. You just go on Twitter and you can pretty much get one today if you wanted one. But he was popular for good reasons. Lots of people loved him, followed him, listened to him. And then he was very controversial in many ways. At one point he was stoned. They thought he was going to die. I didn't know they still stoned people in the 1700s, but apparently they did. He was stoned and the, he, he literally almost died. There were many reports that he, even in an age with no microphones, that he spoke to people, to groups of people, 20 to 25,000 large. The reports were that it, the, the crowds grew so big that the only reason people would leave is simply because they were too far away to hear him. 
because the crowd was so big, they would come up, they couldn't hear him anymore, and they left. He was well known for being a passionate man. He was passionate for Jesus. He was passionate for the true gospel. He was willing to say things that were not so popular, hence rocks being thrown at him. Thrown at him. He, he would say things, these are quotes, it is a poor sermon that gives no offense, that neither makes the hearer displeased with himself nor with the preacher. He would say things like, the reason why congregations have been so dead is because they have, been, they have dead men preaching to them. How can dead men beget living children? Mere heathen morality and not Jesus Christ is preached in most of our churches. He would say things like, other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel than I. He was very passionate about the true gospel. And he was saying that while someone may be more talented than me, they cannot present a better message than the gospel. This is their job. He was willing to say things that may have been offensive, that may have been controversial for the sake of the gospel. He also said to preach more than half an hour, a man should be an angel himself or have angels for hearers. So clearly he was wrong on a few things, okay? So he didn't know everything, so calm down. But Benjamin Franklin became fascinated with his preaching. He would kind of follow him around and go to many, if he could get there, many of his speaking engagements. Now, the odd thing was, though, Benji wasn't exactly a Christian. He didn't profess to believe in Christianity. He didn't profess to be a Christian. He, he believed in God in a kind of existential way of, yeah, there's a God, but I don't necessarily believe he saved us or we need saving or any of those things. But he would go to many of these events. So finally, someone noticed that and, and said, hey, why are you going to so many of these events when you don't even believe what he is saying at them? And Benjamin Franklin replied with, you are right, I don't believe, but he does. You see, I want people to say that about me. Whether you believe what I say here today or any day that I preach, I hope that that can be said about me one day. He believes what he's saying, whether I do or not. He speaks it in a way he truly believes this to be true. Any preacher worth his salt, we talked about what that even means a few weeks ago, worth his salt, should want that said about him. Because here's the thing, it's not the only criteria to be a true prophet instead of a false prophet like we talked about a few weeks ago, but believing what you preach is on the list. If you don't believe it yourself, then you are by definition a false prophet. But you see, Whitfield spoke with authority, maybe more than anyone ever has since Jesus. And yet he was still speaking with borrowed authority. He was still speaking with derived authority from another source. You see, all preachers are speaking with borrowed authority. The only authority we can even hope to have is derived from this book. It is derived from these words. I don't speak with my authority today. I speak with the authority given by these words because these are God's words. This story is about one man, and that one man gives us the authority to talk about that one man because he is the man to talk about. This is not the authority Jesus was speaking with. He was speaking with his own divine authority. He wasn't derived authority from anywhere. It wasn't borrowed authority from anywhere. It wasn't pointing at something else. Jesus breaks onto the scene 
when there were many preachers preaching many different things and points at himself. He says, all of this is about me. Even in this sermon, we can look back at Matthew 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 11. It says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He's clearly stating here that it will be because of him that you will be persecuted. Because of him, you will be ridiculed and made fun of. Because of him, all of these things will happen to you. Matthew 5, 17, just a few verses after that. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Think about this statement in context for just a moment. He is telling these people, point blank, that all of Scripture, that the other people are preaching, it's about me. All of those guys, no matter what they are saying, if it comes from the Torah, which is what they would have had back then, it's about me. It's pointing forward, and here I am. Look, me. It's about me. This was the, the Bible of their day. So imagine it this way. If I came in here today and I said, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 29, we're going to learn about Justin Crow today because that scripture is about me. You should run screaming out of the building and never return if that happens at any church. But that's what Jesus is doing. If I even implied that this scripture was about me, you should run out of here. And Jesus wasn't implying anything. He was point blank saying, all of that is about me. That is the authority that I come with speaking with today because it's about me. Last week we even looked at scripture that, again, it's scary, but we're going to say it again. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So much is packed in there that we didn't even get to last week, so I'm going to say it today. He clearly says only here that he is the only judge. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying, I get to determine who does or does not enter. But by the same token, I am also the criteria by which I will judge whether you get in. So I get to judge whether what you say is true and if you believe it enough about me to get in. So I am the judge and the criteria by which I determine who is worthy of admittance into my Father's kingdom. And then furthermore, he says... And your reward for being worthy will be to hang out with me for all eternity. And your punishment will be to not hang out with me for all eternity. How arrogant is that if he is not who he says he is? If I said any of that, hey, your punishment today is you don't get to hang out with me. Because you messed up the rules. That's completely arrogant that you would even care enough that that would be a punishment. And yet, Jesus is saying specifically that. I'm the judge, I'm the criteria by which you will be judged, and your reward and punishment all hinges upon me. It is all about me. This is not borrowed authority. He is speaking on his own authority. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. It says, the scribes were speaking from authority. Jesus spoke as authority. He was not a pointer. He was the point. I think that sums it up completely when we look at Scripture. He is not pointing at anything but himself. He is the point. And he lays this point out in Scripture, the Scripture that we are teaching today. 
He says to them, hey, you want to know what makes you wise? Doing what I say. You want to know what makes you a fool? Not doing what I say. Simple as that. It's pretty straightforward. You want to be wise? Do what I tell you. You want to be a fool? Don't. Seems pretty straightforward. This is why you cannot treat Jesus' Sermon on the Mount or any of his other teachings as simply good, ethical, moral, worthy to be followed teachings. These are not just good advice teachings. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to, you cannot separate the man and the message. You cannot say that his teachings are great to be followed if you are not willing to follow the man who is speaking them. They're inseparable because he is saying here, if you want to believe in my teachings, it requires you to believe in who I am because that is my teaching. That is what I'm teaching. I'm not teaching you to be a good moral person outside of who I am. That is the authority that he comes with. To follow him because all of the teachings are about him. Again, he is the point, not the pointer. So by not believing, you are not following his teachings. Because again, they are inseparable. And this is what he's saying in verses 24 through 27. This is where we go backwards a little bit. Jesus is saying that to be wise, you will hear his words and do them. And we have just shown that all of his words are geared towards pointing to himself. Not just the behaviors, not just the moral teachings, not just the actions it takes. It is pointing to him. So when it says that you build your house on the rock, the rock Jesus is referring to in this passage as the foundation for our spiritual house is not his teachings. It is him. The rock is Jesus himself. We do not build our house on his teachings. We build our house on him, the man. He, not his teachings alone, must be the foundation upon which we build our lives. Too many times we see people of all walks of life, they build foundations on things that seem permanent at the time. They seem like they will not fail. And then maybe years later, we see that those things also fail. We, it, re, it is revealed that their foundation is faulty because they did not build it on something that is permanent and unchanging. This is why we build on the rock, on Jesus himself, he is the only thing that is unchanging. He is the only un thing that is unfailing, unfaltering, and will not let us down. No matter the storms of life, no matter the winds that blow, the floods that rise, none of those things can, can take our foundation away if our foundation is Jesus. This is why we cannot rely on Jesus as simply a moral man or a moral teacher. He was those things, but he was not just those things. Because if we rely on him just to get our morals, what happens when the culture's morals change and they don't line up anymore? Then it seems immoral to follow Jesus' teachings because who's this guy? How dare he tell me how to live? When culture's morals change and we are not built on the rock of Jesus, we are prone to change with the culture because what it means to be moral doesn't line up with what he's saying any longer. This is what happens to countless people who claim to be following Jesus. Morals change. It doesn't make sense anymore to follow Jesus' teachings. And because we're not following Jesus as the authority, we're just making sense of his teachings. Well, we culture changes. Those things don't apply anymore. This is what it means to live counter 
culturally. Jesus is calling us here to radical obedience in this passage. We must lean into Jesus and radically obey him, not because of the teaching itself, but because of who is teaching it. Because it comes from one who has ultimate authority. So if he says it, when culture's morals change, he doesn't. When culture says it doesn't make sense to do that anymore, he doesn't care. Because he has ultimate authority. He is speaking with ultimate authority. When ethics change, Jesus stays the same. And we are going to be ridiculed and ostracized for following him in this way. More and more it's looking like even in America, maybe in some of our lifetimes, we may be physically hurt or killed for our belief. I'm, I'm not a prophet. I'm not saying that's going to happen. It's trending towards that way. And it's definitely happening in other places of the world. To follow Jesus puts you on the fringe. It puts you on the outside because culture's morals have changed. You realize how stupid we sound according to American culture when we say that people should remain celibate until they are married and, they, and furthermore shouldn't even think things about non-celibacy, if you get what I'm saying? Or to love your enemies even if your enemies happen to be Muslim? You see, America thinks that's stupid. People shouldn't divorce just because they fall out of love. That seems stupid to American culture. There's only one way to get to heaven, really, one way. There's not multiple paths up the same mountain to the tip top. We sound ridiculous, but these are all teachings we clearly see in the Sermon on the Mount. We see Jesus specifically saying all of these things. And clinging to these teachings is going to make us look silly many times. It is going to bring about persecution many times. But building our house on Jesus means that we have to face that, means that we have to live rebelliously. And I know that sounds kind of funny to some people in the room. In times past, to be a rebel meant you went out and got drunk and smoked cigarettes and got high and you, for some reason, cut the sleeves off your leather jacket and rode motorcycles and, hey, did those kind of things, fixed jukeboxes with your fists or your kicks. Now, that's like Tuesday afternoon, Okay. It's not even the weekend anymore. Like, that's just, ah, that's just normal day-to-day life. To be a rebel in today's culture means you basically do the opposite of all of that. So you sew the sleeves back on your leather jacket, I guess. But you also don't do any of those things because that's what everyone's doing. You want to be labeled a rebel? Don't do all, the, all of those things. Live celibate lives until you're married. Don't go out and party and carouse and whatever all that entails. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us, we saw this a few weeks, maybe months ago, to be salt and light. And that is what, exactly what that is. It is to be different, to stand out, to have a purpose, to be rebellious to culture. The only thing that has changed in the command to be salt and light is contextually what that means specifically. Okay, It doesn't mean that we are not called to be salt and light. It's just how do we do that has changed because technology has changed, because culture has changed. How do we do that? Now it means you don't play Pokemon Go if you're above the age of about 14. That's what that means, okay? Live rebelliously. Don't walk around my neighborhood with your phone and almost get hit last night like it did happen in my neighborhood. But Romans 12, 2 specifically says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
But as we do these things, are we placing our trust in the teachings of Jesus as good moral teachings, or are we treating them as words spoken with ultimate and timeless authority? Words spoken that are meant to be followed because of who spoke them, not because they are sensible, not because they fit into our day-to-day lives, and not because they fit into what culture says that it should fit into. You see, if we have built our foundation on the shifting sands of morality, then our house will fall like the one built on the sand in this scripture, and great will be the fall of it. But we will be the ones on solid footing, questioning whether we're on solid footing. We will look differently. People that are on the sands will prosper in ways that we are not prospering. And we will question, well, why do they get that when I get this, when I'm supposedly following Jesus? When our, major, when our morality says something that the majority is not saying, we have, to, we have to look and say, okay, is my foundation built on these teachings because I just want to follow them and be a good moral man or woman? Or am I built upon Jesus as the ultimate authority, the ultimate rock, the ultimate foundation? We can lean into persecution in those times and say, bring it on, basically. Because when we are persecuted for Jesus' name's sake, we will be approved by God. We will be blessed by God. We see this specifically in the Beatitudes at the beginning of this sermon. But it's only then do we get to see the foundation that we are built upon. It is when the storms of life come that reveal to us what we place our affections and our trust in. See, most of us would agree that the storms of life are simply an inevitable but undesirable part of life. They're going to happen, but I wish they wouldn't. That's basically how we would all kind of summarize the storms of life. But we should actually be looking at them as a form of God's grace. It is, it is then that he is revealing to us what we have built our house upon. It is then that we get to see the foundation of our spiritual house revealed. Look at the passage. What are the differences in the two houses? There are none, right? Same house, same rains fell, same floods rose, same winds blew. The only difference that was revealed was revealed by the storm, and it was the foundation One made it, one stood strong, one fell, and the great was the fall of it. But they were the exact same house on sunny days. The the foundation wasn't revealed when the sun was shining. And what does that mean for us here today? I hope this isn't true. But it probably means that there are some people in this room today that have laid their foundation on sand. These people will look the same. They will talk the same, they will act the same, they will dress the same, they will desire a lot of the same things, they will want joy and comfort, they will want forgiveness when they fall short, they will admit sin when they have sinned, they will look and be the same as us. What is lacking though is the desire to be like Jesus, they are desiring to be moral, good people, and a lot of times that overlaps quite a bit they don't rely on him and him alone for salvation like we looked at last week they are the people that are going but didn't we prophesy but didn't we wear a tie to church every week didn't we get baptized when we were 12 and follow you the rest of our days didn't we do this didn't we do that 
They've laid their foundation on morality. They don't have the desire to evangelize to pe for people to be like Jesus. They have the desire to moralize and teach people, well, you should live this way or you should live this way because it will give you a full and abundant life. It will make you blessed. It will make you money. It will do this. It will do that. You want to get rid of that storm? Just do these things. They don't say follow Jesus. They say do the teachings of Jesus. And I hope, I hope we understand the difference. This is not me saying don't do the teachings of Jesus and throw those out the window because he specifically tells us to do them. It's just it reveals to us what we have built our foundation upon. See, the Bible tells us that God makes the sun shine and the rains fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous just the same. So if you're a Christian, good things are going to happen to you, bad things are going to happen to you. You're not a Christian, good things are going to happen to you, bad things are going to happen to you. Sometimes they will be the exact good things and the exact bad things that happen to you in group form. There is no separation there. The only difference is who is standing at the end. And this is why the storms may be God's grace. Because sometimes they reveal to us that we have laid our foundation on shifting sands and we, a change needs to be made. And sometimes it reassures us and shows us that we have, in fact, laid our foundation upon the rock of Jesus. And either way, that is abundant grace to be shown. Either way, that is God's grace. Because he is allowing you to see a change needs to be made. Or he is reassuring you that you have, in fact, done the things and laid your foundation on the rock of Jesus. This is why verses... 28 and 29 are so important. They are not throwaway. They are not transitional statements. Because it is based on this very authority that we must follow the instruction to build our foundation on the rock and not the sand. It is based on the authority of Jesus that we must go out and tell people about Jesus. Not morals. Not being a good person. That changes every day what it means to be a good person. Jesus does not change. We must say yes to Jesus, not simply to the teachings that make sense in our lives. And this is how we can tell if we were following Jesus or simply a set of rules. Because we see Jesus speak about his authority specifically later in Scripture. It's the last thing he says to his disciples. It was what, in essence, planted this church. In Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus has all the authority there is in heaven and on earth. And then something incredible happens. He delegates that authority. He says to his disciples, All this authority is mine, and now I am giving you authority to go speak about me. Not about my teachings and my morals, and now I was a good prophet, and all of those things. The authority is given to the disciples for one specific reason, to go make other disciples of all tribes, tongues, nations, everywhere and anywhere go tell people about me not just my teachings include my teachings but what did we discuss earlier the teachings point to Jesus go tell people that they should never feel safe and assured unless they have built their spiritual house upon the foundation of Jesus not his morality but on his sacrifice on his cross on his blood and this is how we can know whether or not we have built our house on that foundation. Do we have a true, unassailable desire to see others come to know Jesus the man, 
Not Jesus the myth, not Jesus the good moral teacher, not Jesus the philosopher, not Jesus the revolutionist, not Jesus the pointer, Jesus the point. Jesus the lamb slain in our place. Jesus the sacrifice who forgives us of our sins, who redeems our souls for eternity. That Jesus, not the good guy that was going around baptizing people and doing a few things. So we must ask ourselves the same question that many of the people listening to this sermon had to ask. I have to imagine, it's not in scripture, so this is me. I have to imagine at least a few of the people listening to his sermon that day that had just gathered, walked up, started hearing stuff that he said, had to have said something to the effect of, who does this man think that he is telling us all of these things, pointing to himself, telling us that all scripture is about him? Basically, not, I'm sorry, not basically, but saying he is God. Who does this man, this man, think that he is? And you see, Jesus would spend the rest of his ministry proving his authority. He would cast out demons. He would calm storms. Like, just think about that. Nature literally listened to this man. He stood out, hey, 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 calm down. And the storm was like, oh, hey, my bad. Like, that's incredible to me that he just calmed a storm. He walked on water turned water into wine, healed the sick, raised the dead, and then to top all of those things off, he raised himself from the dead. So instead of who does this man think that he is, we have been proven, we have been shown who this man is. We know the rest of the story. So I'm going to ask you guys all of that, that same question today is, who do you say that Jesus is? There is no more important question that you can answer with your life. There is no more important response than the one you can make to Jesus' Jesus' claims in Scripture. Listen to what the Bible has to say about who Jesus is. He is the Alpha, the Omega. He is the bread of life. He is the good shepherd. He is the cornerstone. He is the great I am. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the mediator, the Messiah, the Prince of peace, the true vine. He is the Savior. And he is the narrow gate, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the fulfiller of the law. He is the point of Scripture. He is the point of the world. He is the point of life itself. But because of his claims that we have looked at today to be God, he is either all of those things or he is none of those things. You can't pick and choose which ones of those lists you want him to be. He is either the Lord of your life or he is not. He is either the Lord of your life and he will never be the savior of it if he is not. He can't be one or the other. He cannot be, he cannot be separated out to be whatever things you like that list to be. So how do you respond today? I can't answer these questions for you. Neither can Pastor Eric, neither can any pastor that you ever meet. You have to answer this for yourself. But how do you respond not to Jesus' radical teachings? but to Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? If he speaks with authority like the Bible says, there is only one conclusion to make. He is all of those things. If he truly does speak with the authority, with that authority, then he is no longer simply a moral man that is suitable to be followed for your morals and your ethics. He must become the Lord of your life or he will never become the Savior of it. But his rules are not the Lord of your life. He is the Lord of your life. You follow his rules. You are obedient to him because of who 
he is, not because of what he says. Whoever hears these words and does them will lay a foundation that is firm and can never be shaken. So I ask all of you here today in closing, what have you laid your foundation upon? Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you that Jesus spoke with such authority. I thank you that you have delegated that authority to your disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And I pray that we, everyone in this room, has laid a foundation upon the rock of Jesus and not your good moral teachings. That we would obey your good moral teachings because of who you are and that you are the ultimate authority, that you are timeless authority, that you do not go out of fashion, that you do not trend like some of the trends we see come and go in our culture, but that you are timeless, that you are ultimate, that you are the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, but you are also the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, and you are also the Savior that comes to mediate between us and the wrath of God. We thank you for who you are, that you are the Savior, that you are God, that you are the Word, that you are the true vine, that you are the Good Shepherd. And we praise you for all of those things. And I pray that as we sing these next songs this morning, that we would, we would sing them with that in mind, that we would sing them knowing that you are the point, that you are not the pointer. I am the pointer here today. We are the pointers here every day of our lives, and we point to you who is the point. And I pray that as we go from this place, that we would believe that, that we would build our foundation upon you, Jesus not your teachings that make sense today but don't make sense tomorrow in today's culture, but that we would build our foundation on you because you are ultimate. You are authority. You are the king. And you are divinely authorized to give instruction that is worthy to be followed because of who you are and your identity. We love you, Jesus. And I pray that you continually use the storms of this life as a form of your grace to reveal to us when we are building our foundation on something that will not last. Reveal that to us so that we can make the proper changes in your name, by your power, through your spirit to rebuild our foundation upon you. Pray that anyone in this room that is right now built their foundation on the sand, that you would quicken their hearts, that you would draw them unto yourself. You would reveal to them that their foundation is faulty, but that they can build a new spiritual house built on the foundation of Jesus. I pray that you would save them and change their lives forever. I pray for those in this room that have built their foundation upon you, that they would go out of this place and live like it, that they would go out of this place and obey your teachings, not for the teaching's sake, but for your sake, Jesus that they would always be pointing to you and not saying, look at me, look what I've done. I should be saved because of this. Look at my list, look at my resume, but look at Jesus. And I pray that we would take your command seriously to go make disciples of all nations. Again, not because you told us to, but because, of you, because you are who you are. That we would not do those things begrudgingly, but joyously, knowing that you are the one that brings fruit that we may water, we may plant, but you are the one that brings the growth. And I pray that we put all of it in your hands, that we trust you, Jesus, and that we would love you more and more each and every day of our lives. When the storms come, 
pray that our house is still standing at the end. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.